So when something really unexpected and not good happened, we say, Antichrist moment, you mark my words, it'll all be for the best. And yeah, and being arrested was one of the major Antichrist moments where I was terrified and I was in this police station being charged and processed and all these people are standing around looking at me going, ooh, look, they've got a Mzungu, they've got a white guy <laughs> and he's in trouble. Wow, this is going to be fun. Uh-huh. And I was thinking, oh, patting my pockets down, you know, because in much of Africa it's all to do with how much you prepare to pay to get out of the yeah. trouble you're in. Hello and welcome to Unexpected Turns. Today, Bev and I talk to Max MacDonald, whose life has had more than a few unexpected turns and many a setback. But as he says, the experience they have brought means that no matter what, even if he could turn back time, he would not live or do anything differently. Listen on to find out more. Hello. I've just walked in. I've been out all morning um, trying to negotiate stuff to do with our big trip to Oz. And uh, I'm, I'm still gathering my breath, but that's probably the best way to catch me, to be honest. Wow. <laughs> Exciting. We're delighted that you've managed to squeeze us in between your trip to <laughs> Uganda and your trip to Australia. So thank you very much for coming and joining us today. Well, so am I. So am I. That's fine. It's my pleasure. Well, I'll just have another wee, another wee sip of this. Uh, it's decaf, but it'll still help. Good. Yes. Well, Max, it's, 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 it's lovely to talk to you. Anne has told me a little bit about you, and I've read a little little bits about you, and you've obviously had a very interesting life with, with lots of unexpected turns. You've, you've travelled and lived all over the world, so I wonder, could you start by just telling us a little bit about that? Well, yes, I have. Um they they were all they were all unexpected in the sense that uh when i was leaving school i was in the selection process for a career with british airways as a pilot and it was going very well and uh i was actually offered a place in their scholarship program and i thought that's it job done all made sorted and and then this being the mid 70s uh we were into the First, uh, well, all of the industrial unrest, the oil crises, the winters of discontent, all of that stuff, and the economic uh, kind of recession and fallout. And so their hiring plans changed mm-hmm. um, quite radically. And they put me off, put me off, put me off, and then eventually told me that I was no longer qualified for the scholarship because I was too old. So would I kind of go away and have a nice career and thank you very much for the interest? which was a bit of a shocker, uh, and then um, compounded by the fact that I could not, my family, we could not afford for me to uh, train a full course in this country. It was beyond our means. Mm. And so I looked around and I discovered, uh, well, I didn't discover, but I, I came across the information that uh, you could do a professional piloting course in the United States for one-sixth of the price that it was in this country. That made it achievable for my folks to help me with, and so that's what I did. So I found myself unexpectedly uh, in Texas learning to fly. Yeah. 
And uh, that was led on to um, an unex three years, two and a half years later, three years later, that led indirectly to me unexpectedly finding myself in Australia in order to get married. <laughs> uh, and then three years later, I was unexpectedly back in Texas, uh, which allowed me to keep flying. It wasn't the purpose, but it allowed me to keep flying. And um, what when has I happened came... to make you come back to Texas? Uh, Belinda had been offered a three-year postdoc research fellowship at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Dallas. Uh, she had just obtained her PhD in Australia, which is why she was there. And because she was there, and it's a long and <laughs> strange story, but that's why I was there too. Yeah. So she finished her PhD. She was offered a place in Texas to do a three-year fellowship, which uh, she accepted because it was a fantastic opportunity. Sure. I just was her accompanying spouse. I was best title I ever had. I was a non-immigrant alien student dependent spouse. Oh. That was in uh, in Australia. And um, So Matt, you're, you're not flying commercially at this point then? No, I had been flying in Texas from eighty-three to eighty, uh, from eighty-one to eighty-three, inclusive as a flight instructor and air taxi pilot. Right. Uh, I went to Texas to Australia, and I ended up working as a taxi driver, a licensed taxi driver in Canberra, uh, because I couldn't get into flying there. Back to Dallas, and I went back to my flying job as an air taxi pilot, charter pilot, and flight instructor. Okay. Did that for the three years while she was there. We came home because of immigration requirements and and not having a plan to stay there, uh, not wishing to at the time. And um, I got into flying, and I was hired by BA again. But again, they closed the door because that was now 89, and that recession came along. So they said, oh, change! tell you what, we've changed our mind. So I ended up going to the Isle of Man unexpectedly and was there for nearly seven years. Uh, so all of those things were unexpected. Uh, after those seven years, I did get hired by BA in 96. Uh, but one of the things I've, I've said to everybody in these kind of conversations was that if you take me back to 74 5 and say tell you what we're going to change history and you do get the job you do get the scholarship well man i got the scholarship but you do get to to pursue it yeah or with the uh, benefit of foresight um you get the life you lived, which was not the long British Airways super career or but all these weird things you did, all these little jobs of being a um, cab driver and uh, pub DJ and flight instructor and dispatch rider and all of those other things that you did whilst working your way into aviation. You've ended up at BA, but only 20 years late. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> What, what would you do? And I, I say, I wouldn't give back what I've done. I wouldn't have all the seniority and all of the, 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 the career path in British Airways instead of all the weird stuff that I did do. I wouldn't give any of that back, none of it, because it was wonderful experience. And it kind of suited my personality in a way, mm. um, just trying odd things and going down untraveled roads, which I yeah. quite often like to do. And um, uh, so it, in the end, it was better for me 
rather than just becoming the one career path, sure. becoming a Nigel, as they call them in Australia, in, in BA. And Nigel, yes. I can speak to that because my son's a pilot for British Airways. So um, there you are. Yes. So he'll he'll know the term. A little bit of an insight into that. But so now you're now you're flying for for BA and it's 96. How did you settle into that then? More structured sort of environment then? Well, um, that's an interesting point, because having had all these other insights into how aviation can be done, British Airways has very much a feeling of its own righteousness and its own perfection. It believes that the rest of the world are wannabe amateurs who just wish they were British Airways. And um, I'm here to say, as an increasing number of people in the last um, 30 years have been hired from out with the British Airways career path. Uh, So the more and more people are starting to actually know there are other ways of doing this and so. Some of them are just as valid and just as good. And some of them are in a way even better than the BA way. Mm. But they didn't believe that. So it it took me a while to understand how the company worked. And I kind of bounced off it a few times. Uh, all through my career, I was coming up against people uh, who my outlook didn't fit well with didn't sit well with mm-hmm. so i had a patchy career all the way through i did all right i was i made captain i was promoted i was demoted uh, I, I i had mostly really really good times but there were aspects of the company that um that especially the more modern one the more yeah um commercially driven and um uh, less people-centric than it it would have been in the past that didn't sit very well with me. So I mean, I, I had 20 fabulous years and I had uh, I was never more proud than when I got my command of British Airways yeah. uh, because it's a it's a thing. It's a thing. Your son will know this. It's, <laughs> it's a thing to be able to say, a badge on your chest that says British Airways captain on it. True. And, uh, that's a fantastic thing. Yeah, he's got that to coming. I think January January the eighth, I believe, is command courses. So, oh, yeah, lots of points you made there. He'd love to talk to you about, but um, so <laughs> so you retire then when from British Airways in ninety in in sixteen. I I was able to um, get early retirement because that was my sixtieth birthday. Okay, and. I was hired on a contract um, prior to the one that your son will have been hired on when the standard retirement age was 55. Mm. As it is, I think still even, well, maybe not, in parts of the civil service mm. and in other organizations, quite a lot of the UK major organizations had 55 as a, as a retirement. BA was standard. It was the standard age. But then in the late 90s, early noughties, the European legislation worked through the system here. And increasingly, that became an untenable legal position under the European Working Time um, Acts so that they were unable to force anybody to retire at 55 when the UK's national retirement age was 65. Yeah. 
So it became an age discrimination thing. So they had to say that everybody who has a contract that says you retire at age 55 were allowed to retire at 55, but couldn't be forced to. So uh, as I had only joined when I was 40, I was still trying to catch up with my pension yeah. and with my financial security and all that. So I kept on going for a few more years after that. But by coincidence, with all of the ups and downs the companies had financially, terms of share pricing and, and markets and almost going bust and, and, mm. and all that, renegotiating of contracts for pay and pensions and doing away with the old pensions and bringing in new ones because of the, the pension liability nearly sunk the company, could still sink the company, but it nearly sunk it. And so they, uh, they made us an offer in the year that I was turning 60, which was too good to resist really. And they said, anybody who takes their pension pot out of British Airways pensions and do whatever you like with it, put it anywhere else, just take it away from our future liability. We will give you a 50% uplift on your. Wow. Pot. Wow. Yeah. That is yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So at that point, my pension wasn't enough for us to maintain any kind of uh, anything like the lifestyle that we, we aspire to. And we don't aspire to much, but we, we, it wasn't enough, but when they gave me this 50% uplift yeah. or offered it, I, we, we crunched the numbers and Blinda had been an IFA for some years. Um, you know, that was some years ago, but she had a bit of understanding of the financial system. And between she and I, we worked the numbers and said, well, with that, the, our expected income we could make from that remaining pot would be nearly enough it wouldn't be guaranteed to be enough, but it'd be nearly enough. So uh, maybe worth a try. And then she was still working with her business. Her business was still coming in. It wasn't bringing in money, but it was bringing in a, a little top up. And my national pension, which is about half what it should be because I spent so many years overseas, okay. uh, that was going to come in and put it all together. And if we're lucky, it'll be yeah, enough. Yeah. And that was that word enough was good enough because I thought, okay, yeah. um, I I actually would quite like to move on now. And I've got these other things I want to do. And there's certain things that happened to like her mom and people we knew who had been waiting for a long and fruitful retirement and then had it robbed from them by medical or accidental issues. And it was a case of actually, if you've got an opportunity to do stuff you really want to do, Oh, well, when things are better, when things are more secure, when things are are more reliable, then I'll miss. No, if you get an opportunity to do something significant, do it if you can. So we just made the decision, right, I'll go early. So I went at 60. I could have stayed on to 65, but I went at 60. And uh, I've never been so busy, never been so crazy ever since. I think you're right. You know, seize the moment. That's, you know, that's exactly what you did. But you clearly didn't give up at 60 like you say you've never been so busy yes that's that is very much the case and um most of it has been unexpected yeah. there you go to fit in with the thing <laughs> uh i i had a long list i had a long list of when i retire i'll be able to this 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 this, this. none of which i'm actually doing right now. okay um uh, what what's happening is Things that have come up, or the 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 uphill 
the school in Uganda, we were already involved by this time in that, but it's grown out of uh, all proportion to what we expected it to be in terms of call on our time and, and on our resources. Mm-hmm. Other things that I'm doing uh, have appeared really since I retired because, oh, I had a chance to get into a bit more biking. All of a sudden, I'm treasurer of the classic club and I could get into a bit more motorcycling. So I'll take my IAM license. Oh, now I'm all of a sudden, I'm a trainer for IAM. And things like this of just coming in and, and taking, and I was, uh, then the pandemic came along and used my IAM thing. So I got to be a blood biker and that wasn't uh, expected. So uh, all these other things that I'm, I'm still waiting to do for, for my retirement treat, I'm still waiting to do them. Wow. Can you just take me back a little bit to the bit about the blood biker? What did that involve exactly? Uh, were we getting into it or doing well, it? either. Um, well, blood biking is just one of these things that you need an advanced qualification to be allowed to do. So... If you have a hankering to do it, then you've got to be either IAM or ROSPA or similar qualified to do that. And it's one of these things that you hear about as a biker or just out in society because you you see these things going past. You think, huh, that seems like that might be kind of fun. Somebody paying me to ride a motorbike about the place. And when you don't know what's going on, you think, and I get to rush about and be all important. And, and But in fact, you don't get to rush about. We have to obey the traffic laws the same as everybody else does at the moment. Um, uh, so it's just one of those things with the back of my mind. That would be kind of a nice thing to do, kind of a, a good thing to do. Uh, I would, It would be a useful thing, and it sounds like it would be fun. So um, when we were looking into people in the IEM and people who had done blood biking, it became a, yes, I'd like to try that. And it would be a way of doing something good, something useful that was also entertaining for me personally, a nice kind of win-win. So I looked into it and um, then Belinda, out of the blue, bought me a course to be for the qualification as a birthday present, it's like a hundred and something pounds. And so she, she bought me the course to become a qualified um, IAM member. So I did that. And then I went and I got in touch with people in the blood bikes to say, uh, tell me about it. And they said, well, we're desperate for people. Yeah. We're always desperate for people to come and ride our bikes. Mm-hmm. And so I went along and I met a couple of them uh, along at the Fourth Valley Royal Hospital. Actually, I had a conversation because there was one park there because that's where uh, one of our standby points. And I had a long conversation with him. And then I, I, I had a contact. I spoke to people who were involved in organizing it. And um, it all sounded rather splendid. So I thought, yes. I'll give that a go. I don't mind giving up a day or two a month. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because what what then happened was the pandemic. Yeah. So I ended up giving up like four days a month, a week. Really? Three or four days a week to, to do oh. it through the pandemic because we kept going all through the pandemic. We are one of the few people that were allowed to, in the first lockdowns, yeah. blood bikes were one of the acceptable transportation systems and because of the nature of the of the crisis uh having that extra capacity for delivering stuff 
because we're just a delivery service. Yeah. One of the things that we hitherto in 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 Blood Bike Scotland don't do is deliver blood. Yeah. We don't take blood. We don't carry blood. Uh, one or two of the English ones do, and it was started on that basis. We carry blood products, but we don't carry buckets of blood as yet. We're working on getting that license as well. But currently, we we were, but we of course in the in the pandemic, we were carrying samples. We were carrying, we were going to the all of the test places and taking samples yeah. into laboratories, taking medications to people who weren't allowed out, um, taking documentation equipment, whatever, all sorts of other things. So we're basically just a glorified. Um, delivery service, a courier service, but we're free. So we, our, our main function in the health service is we save the money because they've got a vast fleet of um, vans and cars, and they also have a, a vast transport budget, uh, which will pay for taxis to deliver things. We do it, and we charge them nothing. So. Just the Blood Bike Scotland, which is one of 42 UK registered blood bikes organisations, we saved the NHS £260,000 last year oh, out of their transport budget. Yeah. Um, so that's our that's our main function, really. Being, you know, in that transport system during the lockdown, it just sounded typical of you. The bits that my sister has told me about you, I thought, you know, you were free spirit. You're doing one thing, you're doing the other. And I couldn't see you, like many of us were, being locked down during lockdown. And so when she said, oh, no, he did this, I thought, <laughs> that fits in with my idea of you completely. I think I, I think Helen is more um, uh, under the influence of Belinda than me, because Belinda is, is a workaholic and incredibly well organised. And I just kind of bounce around from... Thing, one thing to another in a, in a slightly disorganized and haphazard fashion. But um, I do like to do, I've ended up doing all this kind of fun stuff. And this, this uh, the, the school especially is gives me this great aura of being a good person and doing good things. And in fact, I was out there in Uganda, not being a good person. I didn't plan it, didn't set out to do anything good. I wasn't going to, oh, I'm going to go to Africa and do something charitable for these nice poor people because I don't see it that way. I say it's my home. I don't see these are strangers. What was it that made you go to mm. Africa? Because there was a reason yeah. you went to Africa. So could you explain a little bit about why it was you went to Africa originally? Uh, well, when you say originally, um, if we're talking uh, 2012, that's when this all started. In fact, I was born in mm. Africa, so in Uganda. Oh. So that's my original reason for being there was I was born there. But only I was only there till I was five. Right. And then uh, the family all came home in 62. And I'd been looking for reasons to go back and visit unsuccessfully ever since, because I was very proud of being born in this unusual place, which yeah. everybody spoke so highly of and what a fabulous place it was and what an interesting place. And so it always been in my head, but I'd never made it there. But then in 2012, I was finally in a position at British Airways to start operating the flights to Uganda. Uh, so I started to do that. And all I wanted to do was to find my roots. It was all typical British Airways pilot, no offense to your yeah. son. It's all about me. It's all about me. And so I wanted to find my roots. Where was where was I born? Where was the house we lived yeah. in when I was a little boy? Um, 
what was the place like? Because my memories were very faint and scattered. Um, I heard a lot from mum and dad, and I'd seen a lot and read a lot, and I, I'd learned a lot about the place. But my first-hand memories were pretty, pretty uh, random, really. So I wanted my own first-hand awareness of the place and the people. So I just was going looking for my background. And in the middle of all that, I managed to make uh, accidental, completely accidental contact with the, a man who turns out to be the director of Uphill Junior School. And that came about uh, because while I was out, the first time I went out to the west of the country, which is where I did most of my growing up in Uganda, was in the far west in the ruins or mountains, foothills. And uh, I was out there looking for our background. I went to, my, my dad was a policeman in Uganda. He was in the Uganda police. He he was on, uh, on secondment. Uh, Uganda was not a colony. People, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but it was never a colony. It was a crown protectorate in the, Commonwealth by agreement with its existing um, leaders. So, but their police force was run and managed by the colonial police by because they they were professionals in that sort of business. So he actually joined the colonial police, and when he came out of his graduation, the top of his class, he was given a choice, and he chose Uganda because it was the best place to go and do the job. Um, even though it was on secondment kind of to Uganda police. So he was there being a policeman. Mum was out there just because they just got married. And uh, she actually worked in the travel industry. She worked in uh, various aspects of the travel industry because he was only a, a detective. So he wasn't like a senior officer. He was a, a working policeman. Yeah. So not, um, we're not making a lot of money, but they worked. And then my sister and I were both born out there during the years that he was there in the late 50s and into 62. So he was there doing that. So in my first time out to the west of the country, I went up to his police station in Fort Portal, oh, which is the western capital, and took a picture of it and was arrested for unauthorized photography of police and government premises, which is a, a standard crime in much of the world. Okay. Probably here too. I was just so excited. There's Dad's police station. It's clearly the same building. Wow! <laughs> oh, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be a Korean tourist and take a picture, and uh, and this very pleasant uh, young man came out. A policeman came out there and asked me if I could present the letter of authorization, which you can get easily enough, to allow you to photograph government, police, or military installations. Once you've just established who you are and why you're doing it, then uh, I hadn't even thought of getting it because I'd already met some of the countries. To, uh, most senior policeman in Kampala on dad's behalf for the book he was writing about his time there. I'd been sp speaking to the very top guys in Uganda police. And so I was kind of, oh, we're all I'm buddies. Okay. I'm fine. There's dad's cop shop. <laughs> There's the camera. Here's a nice young man saying, where's my letter? Me going, uh, yeah. this is going to be awkward. Mm -hmm. I haven't got one. And I've got to be back in Kampala, 300 and some kilometers away tomorrow to fly the airplane home. This could be very, very tricky. Mm. And uh, the end of all that conversation, where I was taken in, charged, and the whole thing, uh, the whole process was gone through. And at the end of that, um, because he was a detective, this guy that arrested me, and my dad had started the CID office in that police station in 1961 and had been the commander of it. So he wanted to know more about my dad. And so we had a conversation 
And then at the end of the conversation, he said, my brother would like to meet you because I knew I'd like to meet him because I'm saying I want to make contacts. I want to make as many contacts as I can in my old home. And uh, he said, you might like to meet my brother. He's an interesting guy. He's got a school down, blah, 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 blah. He's in town. He came up. We had a conversation. I promised to then, um, anytime I came out to the West, which I knew I would be doing as, as often as I could to, to do this research into my past, Anytime I was out in the West, I promised we would meet and we would have social chats and have a beer at the gardens restaurant. And and I did that. And on the third occasion, uh, the other, the, the brother, who's actually a cousin, Elias, uh, said to me, next time, come down and look at the school. I want you to come and see the school because I'd, I'm going to ask you to see if you can help us out a little bit. So come down and have a look. And I promised I would. And so the next time we did. And then we get into the start of me meeting the school, which is probably part of the other conversation we need to yes, have. Yes, yeah. But that then was the start of this slippery slope <laughs> that I have been skating down completely out of control ever since. <laughs> it is all absolutely fascinating. I mean, the fact that you, you know, it was being arrested that led to the school is quite something. It's, yes. Yeah. I had mentioned to Anne the other day uh, the uh, what we call the anti-Chris moment in the in the household here. Yeah, uh, it's a uh, uh, this is uh, something that came about from my dad's aunt, so my great aunt, Chris, who's a um, was a incredibly characterful small Dundonian lady, <laughs> and she had this attitude having had a really quite difficult life, many struggles and many, many setbacks. And her phrase was, you mark my words, it'll all be for the best. Just mark my words. And that was what we called the Antichrist moment. So when something really unexpected and not good happened, we say, Antichrist moment, you mark my words, it'll all be for the best. And so often you can then sometime in the future, might be minutes, days, months, weeks, yeah, or years, yeah. you, you you might say, Do you know what? That was that was really, really good. Actually, that led to something unexpected. And guess what? It's a good thing. So that's an anti-Chris moment. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And being arrested was one of the major anti-Chris moments, I have to say. Yeah. Where I was terrified and I was in this police station being charged and processed and all these people were standing around looking at me going, ooh, look, they've got a Mzungu. They've got a white guy and he's in trouble. Wow, this is going to be fun. And I was thinking, oh, patting my pockets down, you know, because in much of Africa it's all to do with how much you prepare to pay to get out of the trouble you're in. That never, that never did turn out to be the case here at all it was all handled very professionally and very correctly and uh, it then ended up with us building up Hill Junior School so wow an absolute anti-Chris moment that is quite something and it's something that we said we would talk about next time but I'm so pleased that you've touched on it today yes yes you've had such a successful life so far what would you say are some of the things that you're most proud about? Yeah, and what and what makes you happy as well? Huh. Um, what am I most proud about? I think the fact that having found myself pursuing careers overseas, uh, 
or jobs overseas and ending up living in places I wasn't expecting to. I think having such a good time being a part of the local culture. Now, America and Australia is not difficult and foreign for anybody from Europe, especially from the UK, English speaking. It's English speaking, it's it's developed, it's comfortable. It's not, and they're not hard places to live. It's not like ending up in up the Amazon or up the no. Congo or, or in the middle of Nepal or somewhere. But th- those people that do that kind of thing, those are properly heroic. Uh, I, I had quite, but I'm, I'm really happy that I was always involved in local culture, local scene. I was never in the expat community. I don't particularly care for expat communities in the places that I've come across them. Uh, I was always, I'm going to live here and be a part of this place. And uh, to be able to live long enough in each place um, that I, you feel a, a part of the culture, of the community, not necessarily the culture, but of the community anyway, that's really pleased me that I, it's been so successful being able to to integrate myself into it, not pretend to be Texan or Australian, but to integrate into the society and make a, a good life and enjoy my life and make so many friends, the friends, mm. the people that we've met, the people that I met before uh, Blynn and I were together, uh, the people that we've met together, which are the main reason that we're going to Australia in a couple of weeks, the people I've met beyond anything are the 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 treasure of that I would never have met people in small town Texas or or in big town Texas or in in Australia I would never have had a chance to meet people like that at home in their places yeah. um, or the Isle of Man even living in the Isle of Man I mean the chance to to that we made some wonderful friends there too and so the people are the joy of all of that, because if I had just been BA pilot, my community would have been British Airways, air crew, flight crew, the company. And if I'm lucky, some people I might have met along the way. Yeah. And that would be fine. You know, the people are, all people are nice and they're all worth knowing. But to have had this opportunity to to make really good friendships in all around the world, in, in all of those places, uh, uh, has been that's the biggest treasure of all, really. Oh, lovely! Yeah, and secondary in my flying sense is to fly so many different airplanes in so many different levels of aviation in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah. So for me, that's the aviation is not just something that has British Airways written on it, and it, it's a bigger and bigger and bigger jet, but little things and big things and medium size and and propeller driven things and outback things and trying everything you know and that's been the the second layer of joy but the biggest joy has been the, the people that we've met yeah amazing you can hear that when you speak in your stories as well and I'm, you know i'm sure when when we get to talk about uganda we'll see that even more and you know being a retired teacher yes i'm really interested you know to hear about the school and about education and and about your your journey there. So look forward to talking to you next time about that. Education in Uganda, yes, is a very interesting story. Yeah, we'll look forward to that. It's been it's been fascinating 
Thank you, Max. You've given us so much to think about. And I'm just delighted that you've managed to squeeze us in between these two massive trips that you've got organised. <laughs> and... Well, so am I. And you can probably see that, you know, I, especially the, the Uganda life and the school there, um, I'd love to talk yes. to people about that because this is an area that a lot of people don't know much about. Once again, thank you to Max and to you for listening. You will be back to tell us how his life changed once again after he was arrested in Uganda. We look forward to that. In the meantime, stay safe and take care. Bye.